Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. And joining me, he's in the United States right now, although I think when this episode airs, he'll actually be in Rome for his ad limina visit, is Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to see you. Hey, Brandon. Always a joy to see you. Every month or so, we do one of these big Q&A roundup shows where we just take questions from people all over the place. And sometimes they're themed. We'll take questions from non-Catholics, questions from kids. Yeah. Uh, but today we're going to take questions from people outside the United States. We're usually okay, pretty American centric. So this will be an international q and I know we have thousands nice. of people downloading the podcast from other countries. We see them in the stats. So this is our chance to hear from a lot of them and your chance to hear Bishop Barron's answers to your questions. So we'll just good. dive right in. Sound good? Good. All right. First question comes from Stephen. He's a seminarian in Indonesia, and he's asking for your advice when it comes to evangelization. Here's Stephen's question. Hi, Bishop Aaron. My name is Stephen from Indonesia. I'm a seminarian currently on a mission somewhere in Borneo jungle, Indonesia. My mm. question is how to evangelize in the remote areas where the people were so simple and can't even read the Bible. I'm totally agree with you against the dumbed-down Catholicism, but I'm afraid the people here will not understand nor benefit anything at all if I'm using a high-level language. Thank you so much. God bless you and your ministry. Oh, gosh. Well, God bless you and your ministry, uh, which is important. And it goes right back to the beginning of the church, doesn't it? The missionaries going out to people that have not heard the gospel. Um, you know, keep in mind that many of the first uh, preachers of the gospel spoke to people who, who couldn't read. I mean, most, most people in the ancient world couldn't read. Now, Jews would have known the stories of the scriptures and so on, but they also spoke to, you know, think of St. Thomas, according to legend, goes to India with the gospel. And, you know, the vast majority of those people wouldn't have been able to read. They didn't know the story of Jesus at all. Think of missionaries in more recent times going to parts of Africa where people had never heard the gospel at all. Most of them couldn't read. So, I mean, there certainly is a precedent for what you're doing. I would say two quick things. You know more about this than I do, I'm sure. But uh, the very witness of your life, I think, is super important that they see you because you've come into their lives now as a representative of Jesus Christ. They'll see in you, in the way you live, in your manner of being, um, a sign of Jesus. And that in itself evangelizes. Secondly, I just think, tell the story of Jesus. Doesn't have to be in fancy theological language. Doesn't have to raise every possible question. Tell the story of the dying and rising of Jesus. What he preached, who he was, why he was opposed, uh, why he was brought to the cross, the stories of the resurrection. Tell the charisma. Tell the basic story of Jesus. I think that has what it's always had a profound um, uh, evangelical power. Then, you know, build up from there as people find that story intriguing. They want to hear more. They want to ask deeper questions. Then, then follow and go all the way into the heart of theology. But I think beginning with your own personal witness and with a simple telling of the story of Jesus, that's powerful. That's a great question, Stephen. And Bishop, this is why I love the new media. We're getting a question for, yeah. from a seminarian in Indonesia evangelizing in the jungles of Borneo, yeah. asking a question of a bishop in Los Angeles. I mean, amazing. that's pretty cool. It's amazing. And it's there's the mystical body of Jesus. We're all connected to each other. All right. Next up, we have a question from our neighbors in the north. This one is Megan in Vancouver. She's got a question about worry and anxiety. Here it is. Okay. 
Hi, Bishop Barron. My name is Megan, and I'm from Vancouver, Canada. My question is, what is the Catholic response to properly dealing with worry and anxiety? This is something that I feel like I'm always trying to overcome. Thanks for all the work that you do. And please pray for the birth of my first child this February 2020. Thanks. Excellent. Yeah, God bless you. You know, uh, last uh, episode, Brandon, we talked about Paul Tillich, whom I studied a great deal many years ago. And one of his lines is, finitude in awareness is anxiety. And what he meant was to be finite and to know it is ipso facto to experience fear. The very fact that I, I came into being and will one day pass out of being without any, any control over it, well, that's a source of anxiety. I mean, I, I don't know when I'm going to die. I could get sick tomorrow. I, I don't know. I can't control that. The very fact that I live within space and time, Tillich said, produces anxiety. You know, uh, as you're, trust me, younger people, as your birthdays kind of mount up as you get through life, every time you have a birthday, you know, well, I'm that much closer to the end of my life. The fact that I'm in time means I'm finite. Space, you know, it's interesting living out here in California. Space is always threatening. Look, we, I've had fires have chased me out of my house twice. Mudslide, 10 minutes away from here, killed 25 people one night. Um, earthquakes, <laughs> famine, flood. I mean, our space means that we live in, in anxiety. Think of your best relationships, but they're, they're fraught with, you know, incertitude. Um, is it going to continue this way? Will it go wrong? Uh, as I move through life, I change, she changes, he changes. The point is to be finite is to be afraid, you know? And so this side of heaven, we're not going to eliminate fear completely. We just won't. Now, handing that fear over to Jesus Christ, not that it will be immediately taken away, but it will be contextualized and redeemed by him, if that makes sense. Think now of the image of Jesus on the cross, as that's before your mind's eye. What do you see there? Talk about finitude in awareness as anxiety. Think of someone who's hemmed in in every possible way, experiencing all the forms of, of human fear born of finitude. Okay, hand your fear to him. Let that fear be nailed with him to the cross and then find through him resurrection. Um, so it's not the elimination of fear. It's the contextualization of our fear within the Paschal mystery. That's what a Christian does with fear. You know, another insight Tillich had, I think, is really right. If we try through political, economic, and whatever other means to eliminate fear completely, we'll make it worse. Now, look at the 20th century. You know, all these attempts, oh, if we just have enough of this reform and we just change the politics, that produces more anxiety. So acknowledge it and then hand it over to the crucified Jesus for redemption. Bishop, among my friends and some of the people I read online who aren't religious, I find that the most common secular way to conquer anxiety and worry is to increase your control over life. Yeah. Like if I can cut out all of the variables I don't have control of, 
this assumption is that anxiety and worry go down. But then I see, and I see it among many of my friends, this relentless pursuit of control, which is ultimately yeah. impossible, produces itself more anxiety right. and worry that I, I can't gain control of all these variables. Do you see that too? Absolutely. And I'm reminded of, this is a, a, a pastoral example from a spiritual director of mine many years ago. He was dealing with a lady who could not get to sleep at night. And it was it was this mania to control everything that she was so worried about every aspect of her life and she wanted to get better control over it so she'd lie in bed at night which of course is the worst time to think about these things and trying to get a handle and she couldn't get sleep and what he did is he led her through a, a sort of exercise where he had her say i am not god i am not god and that was the opening of the door that led to greater peace for her because she realized, look, I, I'm, I'm not God. I can't control my life. I, I can't. Lord, you can't. Only in God is my soul at rest. If I try to, to produce rest through my own efforts, I'll make myself crazier, <laughs> more anxious. I'm not God. All right. So, Lord, I'm going to go to sleep now and I'll trust the universe to you. <laughs> and that allowed her finally get it, to get back to sleep. I hear echoes in that of the 12-step process for yeah. Alcoholics Anonymous, that you have you have to let go, admit your helplessness, and rely on a higher power. Absolutely. Uh, and again, that great, the, the psalm, only in God is my soul at rest. That was the point Tillich made, too, is that your anxiety won't be solved on this side of the divide. It's only solved in God when you hand your anxieties over to him. All right, next we turn to a fellow Canadian. Her name is Bridget. She's in Ontario. She's asking a question about purgatory. Here it is. Hello, Bishop Barron. This is Bridget from Ontario, Canada. I have a friend who is a convert to Catholicism, but still struggles with the idea of purgatory and the idea of whether it was divinely revealed or just an idea of humans. Could you please explain? God bless you and everyone at Word and Fire. Thank you for all you do. Thanks for that. Yeah, it's a good question, and it would take us a long time to answer it fully. I'll say this. There are a couple of scriptural um, allusions, you might say, to the idea of purgatory. The most famous is 2 Maccabees, um, Second Maccabees, and then also in 1 Corinthians. You've got a couple of citations in the Bible that are, are pretty clear indicators of what we mean by purgatory. So there is that. There's a scriptural ground. But secondly, I'd say purgatory in its fullness— is an example of the development of doctrine, as Newman would call it, beginning with a sort of kernel of revelation in the Bible. Now that that kernel grows and develops over time as people continue to think about it and pull out its implications. Newman says that uh, in some ways purgatory is a result of a commonsensical perception, namely that most people we know, uh, most Christians we know, die in, in friendship with the Lord but clearly not, not saints in the full sense. Remember in, in Space Salvi, Pope Benedict says something similar, that you know just a casual survey would probably reveal that maybe a handful of people go you know, right to heaven, as we say. And he said maybe it's a handful of people, I mean, who knows, but maybe a handful of people would, would go right to hell, that most people we know, Benedict said, would fall into that grand, that huge middle position of, yeah, friendship with the Lord, but far from perfect. 
And so as the theologians reflect on that, wouldn't it make sense to hold there's something like this purgatorial state? That people who die in the state of grace, that means in friendship with God, but yet far from perfect, require some kind of purgation, namely to purge away from them all that does not belong to love, so that they are fit for heaven, which is simply the place of perfect love. Uh, so, see, to my mind, that makes perfect sense as a development from uh, basic biblical revelation and informed by our religious experience. And I always say, thank God for the doctrine of purgatory. <laughs> Believe me, as a sinner, I, I hope, you know, in, in friendship with the Lord, um, but a sinner, I, I'm grateful for the doctrine of purgatory. Great question. Okay, now we turn to Montana. She is a young woman in Kenya, Africa. Oh, that's her name. Okay, yeah. now we're turning to the now state of Montana. Now we to Montana. Okay. Montana, Montana in Kenya. Uh, she's okay. got a question about how do we evangelize young people about hot button issues without sounding condemnatory or mean-spirited. So here's a question mm -hmm. from Montana in Kenya. Okay. My name is Montana from Kenya. I wanted to ask how to evangelize to young people about moral issues in a way that doesn't sound preachy. For example, abortion or LGBT rights. To have a healthy discussion and not to just um, condemn, but okay, to help her see the truth. Thank you. It's a great question, one that we, we all wrestle with. I think everyone involved in, in evangelization and apologetics and, and preaching, we wrestle with that. Um, Here's the first insight, start positive. And so the culture, I think, wants to lure us onto the ground where we sound, precisely as you're suggesting, we sound cramped and crabby and negative and, you know, life denying. And, oh, there's the church again telling us no. And Well, the culture likes that in a way because it makes us look bad. And as I've often said, the church does say no, but it's always a no to a no. Because, I mean, in Christ, it's only yes. And the church who expresses the voice of Christ only says yes. When we say no, it's a no to some negativity in the culture. But our basic stance is always yes. So I would suggest begin with and spend a lot of time with what the church is for. So I know people write, yeah, but what about my LGBT friends? Well, can we maybe wait a little bit and let me explain what we're for, what we think is, is a rightly ordered sexuality, you know? Always, always, always we reach out in love to everybody, right? Those that we agree with, those we don't agree with, those who we think have it right, those that don't have it right. So that's a bottom line, always in love, never in hatred. But I, I would also say begin with and spend a lot of time with what we're for, and, and don't succumb to the temptation. Oh, oh well, tell me now again what, what you're against. Tell me why you don't like these people. No, no, what are we for? Here's what the church uh, stands for when it comes to any of the hot button uh, issues. Then once people get onto that ground, your hope might be they'd say, oh, okay, now I get it. Now I see why you're against certain things. Um, at least that would be a better place uh, to start. Always in love, beginning with the positive, I think would be two basic recommendations.
What do you think, Brandon? You you deal with this issue a lot too. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I I tend to think that the kerygma is a better strategy than focusing on the hot button issues because that's not really evangelization. Evangelization is yeah. proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, not debating the intricacies of moral issues, which you need to do, just not as your leading move, I think. It's a frustration because I, I do a lot of this, of course, and, and when you talk, especially to young people, and let's have a Q&A. Almost invariably, people begin with, you know, the hot button sexual issues and a lot of reasons for that. But it's, you know, if you read the scriptures and you see Paul coming into Corinth or into Athens or into, you know, Philippi or Thessalonica, you don't see Paul saying, now, all right, everybody, the first thing I want you to know is, you know, we're, I'm against homosexuality. Paul, in fact, is against homosexual uh, uh, behavior. But you'd never get the impression from his preaching, oh, that's the first thing he wants you to know. The first thing he wants you to know is, is Jesus Christ risen from the dead, you know? So quite right. That's how we uh, evangelize. All right. Let's move from Kenya to Germany. Germany, we have a question from Adobe who's asking about different styles of prayer. Here's the question. Okay. Hi, Bishop Byron. My name is Adobe, and I listen to you from Germany. So I was having an argument with my boyfriend, and I made the case that every time that you go before God in prayer, you don't always have to go with the request. Sometimes just go in gratitude and praise, and God, who sees the heart, would know that you have forgone asking him for something, for instead praising him, and would grant you your heart desires if he so wishes. My boyfriend disagrees and thinks that you can do, you should do both all the time. What do you think? Yeah, thanks for that question. It's a good one about prayer. And prayer is, you know, a, a complex business in a way. You know, this morning, as I, I do every day, I had a, a holy hour. So I spent an hour before the bus sacrament. And part of that time I spent praying at least part of my office, which I'm obliged to do as a priest. Uh, I pray the rosary usually, or at least part of the rosary, and then I might finish it later. But one way to think about the holy hour is to divide it into sections. And maybe you say, you know, the first... 15 minutes, I look at him, he looks at me. You know, the famous line from the Curie of Ours. Maybe it's just simple communion with the Lord. That's all I'm doing. I, I'm not asking. I'm not really praising yet. I, I'm just there. I'm just there. As Fulton Sheen said, I'm like a, like a faithful dog. And I'm just, I'm sitting by the master's feet. And the master's not giving me a command yet. And I'm not asking. I'm just there. Okay. Maybe the next 15 minutes could be a prayer of praise. Uh, I, I praise you, God. Thinking of the Psalms that I pray now as, as a priest, they're, they're filled with that language. Many of the Psalms are just, Lord, you're really something. <laughs> Lord, you're great in your, your power and you're great in your mercy. And Lord, you're wonderful. And okay, good. I'm just praising the Lord. Uh, maybe the next 15 minutes, um, all the people, now we all have this. I, I've got a lot as a, as a priest and a bishop. People say, hey, bishop, could you pray for me? Could you? I, I'm in trouble here. Lord, could you ask the Lord to help me? And my, my, my kid is sick and, and I'm really worried. I'm having surgery. And Okay, so now I'm going to spend 15 minutes praying for people. Um, and then maybe the last 15 minutes, ask the Lord what you want. Maybe, maybe you want something. You know, Lord, I... I love you. I, I praise you. I, I pray for all these people I know. And now finally, I come before you with, with this you know, request. What you've done there is you've divided the hour into different types of prayer. You know, They're all good. They're all valid. One is not really higher than the other. Call that first part purely contemplative prayer, You know, where you, you leave aside words and images and 
requests, and you're just in the presence of the Lord. The other one is a prayer of praise. The other one's a prayer of petition. You know, good, good. They're all valid, good types of prayer. And I think um, take the time, as Thomas Merton said, take the time for all those forms of prayer. Um, you know, or maybe your holy hour, you don't want it to be that structured. You just want to kind of flow from one to the other. Okay, fine. Sheen said that too about the holy hour. A priest said, well, what do I do during the holy hour? And Sheen said, make the commitment to it and then don't worry about it. Do whatever you want. Work on your sermon if you want. Okay, pray the office. Fine. Pray the rosary. Good. Pray for people. All right. Sit in, in silent adoration. Great. But but take the time. You know, I think he and Merton would have agreed on that. Take the, Make the commitment. But then, you know, engage in a lot of different forms of prayer. Um, so I guess my answer is a big both and or all the above in terms of prayer. All right. Next up, we have a question from James in Vancouver. His question is going to get your metaphysical gears turning, Bishop. Um, he's asking Good. about God's relation to the universe. Here's his question. Okay. Hello, Bishop Barron. This is James from Vancouver. In past videos, I've heard you talk about how God is outside of or can't be considered one item amongst many in the material world. Um, I've also heard you talk about Thomas Aquinas' argument of God as an unmoved mover. How do you reconcile the contradiction between God being not a part of the material universe, but still having an effect on it? Thank you very much. Yeah, good, thanks. It's not a contradiction at all. In fact, one implies the other very deeply. Think of, you know, two items in the world. So I got this microphone in front of me, and here I am, and here's the mouse over there. Well, we can, as this gets caught on my watch, we can influence each other to in a very limited way. So I can I speak into this microphone. I can move it around. I can move the mouse. Um, this mouse is affecting my hand as I touch it. Okay, that's a type of actualization. Of a, of a potentiality in a very limited, mitigated way. Uh, uh, that's the way physical objects relate to each other. Now think of something at a higher pitch. So Brandon and I now are talking to each other and we're having an effect on each other in a much deeper way because now you're at the psychological dimension or even the spiritual dimension, the exchange of ideas. We're influence, influencing each other in a much higher way. Think now of the way an angel might be able to influence us. We talk about, and this angel's both fallen and unfallen, right? It can influence us in this very deep interior way through temptation or through a positive suggestion, etc. The point I'm making here is the higher you go to the in the level of being, the more intensely involved in another you can be. Now, let's cut to the chase. God who, quite rightly, you're saying, is not an item in the universe. Like there's the mouse and the microphone and God and me. No, that's not the right way to think about it. And then God becomes one kind of cog in this, in this machine who would have a very mitigated influence on things, right? God is beyond human consciousness, beyond angelic manner of being. God, the sheer act of to be itself, utterly actual, actus purus. That means God can influence universally, and with greatest intimacy. So Aquinas says God is in all things by essence, presence, and power, and most intimately so. That's because he's not an item in the universe. He can be that intimately involved in our lives. Furthermore, why we speak, therefore, of God, of course, as the prime mover of objects. Yeah, I couldn't explain this 
you can't see it. I'm moving the mouse. You can't explain that without ultimately recourse to God. But I can't explain spiritual movement, spiritual development apart from God. God reaches from end to end mightily, the Book of Wisdom says, and orders all things sweetly. So the extent of God's power, but also the the intensity of God's causal influence is because of his unique ontological status. So I, I'm, I'm glad you pressed it because it's it's not a contradiction. In fact, it's the opposite of a contradiction. It's, it's, uh, it's one because of the other, if that makes sense. I think a lot of people, when they think of this interaction between the spiritual world and the material world, have in mind something like <clears throat> Casper the ghost, you know, who's sort of floating yeah. through walls. How does someone like Casper touch a material item or move a material item because it just goes right. through them. No, but think of it as the spiritual is a more intense form of being. So, so the, the Casper thing is a good example because that's like Casper would just be another kind of item within the empirical realm. Like he's just more um, uh, ephemeral or he's, he's more uh, transparent or something, but the properly spiritual means being at a higher pitch of intensity Thomas uses the example of heat, which I've always liked, that think of God as the, the fire in itself. And then as things are, are closer to God, the hotter they become, the more intense. So think of the seraphim, and that the Hebrew there, seraphim, has the sense of those on fire, right? Because they're right up against the divine. Then as you go out from that level of intensity, things get cooler, if you want, in their being. Well, the hottest, like a, like a seraph, can have a massive impact, see, because of the intensity of his being, his causality can be that much more intense. God is that whose causality no greater can be thought. God can reach into the deepest intimacy of your life and cause, and again, without interrupting you. See, the way I'm right now moving the mouse, I'm kind of interrupting the mouse. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm intervening, you know, well, God can move us in that sort of non-interventionary way, if I could put it that way. He orders all things sweetly, see, not aggressively, not, not through, through interruption or intervention, but in the sweetest manner. Do you know, I think we, any spiritual person uh, understands this. Those moments in life, and they're kind of rare, but they're like real precious. They're, they're grace moments. When you just know, yep. That's the right thing for me to do. And, and it, it's like something just opens up and you just effortlessly move along this path. That's what grace is like, you know? Um, so that's how God exercises causal influence. All right. I think we got time maybe for one more question. This one is from Matthew in Vancouver. He's asking about your recent appearance on Dave Rubin's show. You've been on there twice, but the more recent one you were on with another guest, Rabbi Wolpe. And it was oh, yeah. one of the few moments of disagreement. A lot of the conversation was on morality and religion and spirituality, things you agree on. But then Dave asked you each about the Trinity. And obviously a Jewish rabbi and a Catholic bishop would not agree. Um, but Rabbi Wolpe made an argument explaining why he doesn't think that the Trinity is sound doctrine. Uh, so Matthew wants to know how you'd respond to it. Here, here's Matthew's question. Hi, Bishop Barron. My name is Matthew. I'm from 
Vancouver, British Columbia. And I recently watched your video with Dave Rubin and Rabbi Wolpe. And I was wondering if you could talk about his disagreement with the Trinity and how if God is perfect, or if the Father is perfect, how are there three people? Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Yeah, thank you. I remember, of course, the appearance with Rabbi Wolpe. I don't recall the details of, of the argument he made about the Trinity. But if I'm, I'm following your suggestion here, um, the Trinity would not in any way militate against God's perfection. When I speak of God's perfection, I mean his full actuality, right? As I mentioned before, God is octus purus. There's no potentiality in God that needs to be more fully actualized. That's when I say he's perfect. That has to do with the essence of God. Now, the essence of God is what all three persons have in common. So there's no multiplication of, of divine essences. There aren't three, as you said, there are three people. That's the wrong way to think about it. As though there's like the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. No, they're not three separate beings. There's one divine essence, which is perfect. Is the Father perfect? Yes. Is the Son perfect? Yes. Is the Holy Spirit perfect? Yes. Because they, they share the same divine uh, Godhead or essence. The Trinitarian persons aren't separate beings. They are imminent relations within the unity of the, of the Godhead. So the Father gives rise to the Son in the great act by which the Father knows himself. The Son and Father look at each other, and because they're perfect, they share the same essence, they look at each other with a complete love. That shared love is the Holy Spirit. And so the Trinity is not, uh, anyway, a compromise of the divine perfection. It's a, if you want to put it this way, it's a concomitant of it. If God is perfect, that means God is fully actual. That means God has a mind. If God has mind, God has self-knowledge. If, the, if God has self-knowledge, then the knower and the known look at each other with perfect love. That's the spirit. So in a way, the Trinity is an implication of the simplicity and perfection of God. There's no contradiction there. Now, again, I'd have to look back at the rabbi's uh, argument to see the details of it, but that's how I think Catholic theology would handle that issue. I think, and we've talked about this, and I think in previous episodes, Bishop Barron, that people sometimes get worried that if you draw distinctions between the three persons of the Trinity, <clears throat> then you're implying that one or more of the persons lack something that the other persons have, and therefore they're not perfect. And I think that's kind of the line of argument Rabbi Wolpe was trotting down. Right, but that that assumes you've got something like numeric differentiation, the way like three beings are differentiated. And that's precisely how they should not be differentiated. The Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct, that's true, but they're not numerically distinct the way three beings are. And that argument about perfection is a valid one when it comes to ordinary uh, being. Like, for example, you and I are distinct. You can very legitimately conclude from that that neither one of us is perfect, Right. Because well, I mean, if, come on, if I speak were for yourself, <laughs> well, you are, yeah, I know, of course. but if you were perfect, then you would have my modality of being in its, in its complete sense. If I were perfect, I'd have yours. The very fact that we could say, no, we're different means that neither one of us is perfect. So that's a f valid argument, but that assumes that we're talking about three separate beings within uh, God. And that's not what we're talking about. So then would that same reasoning mean that there cannot be more than one perfect God. Would that be right to yeah, say? Yeah, quite right. Yeah, absolutely. That's why we speak of the, of the oneness of God. 
And, and it's interesting in the creed, the two qualities, before we get to Trinitarian reflection, the two things we know about God is that God is one and God is powerful, right? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty. It's very interesting. But, but from those two qualities, you can deduce all the other ones. And that's because of the divine simplicity. So what we call the attributes of God are just different ways of looking at the simple nature of God. But yeah, from his unity follows his perfection. Uh, because um, the two would be irreconcilable. If you had a multiplicity of gods, none of them would be perfect. Well, thanks so much for all of you from all around the world for sending in these great thought-provoking questions. We'd love some more. And so if you're listening and you're from countries outside the United States, please send in your questions. You can do so at askbishopbaron.com. Also, we're preparing another couple episodes with questions from non-Catholics and questions from children. And so if any of those fit the bill for you, please send those in as well. We've We've got a handful already, but I'd like to get a bunch more. Um, so again, askbishopbaron.com is where you can submit your question. Also, Lent is right around the corner. It crept up fast this year. It's on February 26th is when it starts. And we'd like to help you have a powerful Lent by sending you a free Lent Reflections booklet. You can find it at wordonfireshow.com slash Lent. These booklets contain a gospel reading from Mass each day, followed by a reflection from Bishop Barron. Also, we have reflections on the Stations of the Cross from Bishop Barron inside this booklet. So you can get one copy for free. You just cover the shipping and handling. And then you can order a bunch more too if you'd like by visiting wordonfireshow.com slash Lent. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show.